Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. This episode of HR Oxygen is brought to you by Boss Builders. At Boss Builders, our mission is to create the next generation of great bosses. We do this through a variety of training programs, which include our 13-month live masterclass, The Art of Being a Great Boss. This program provides the basic building blocks for being an effective lead, supervisor, or manager. We also have a 13-month live virtual masterclass, The Art of Being a Great Teammate. In this program, we work with individual contributors, building the people and technical skills that will make them more effective. Many of these modules refer to the work in our management program so all employees can be on the same page. A new program for this year is our Art of Being an Administrative Superstar. Your admin staff is the backbone of your organization. This program gives them the important problem-solving and decision-making tools, which will absolutely increase their effectiveness. We offer a number of one-hour short-topic seminars as well, and these are perfect for in-service training and brown-bag lunches. Finally, we offer the opportunity to license all of our materials so your in-house trainers can deliver our programs. For more information, visit us online at thebossbuilders.com or call us at 931-221-2988. Well, as we continue our journey into 2023, a lot that was projected to happen hasn't really happened yet. So we heard that there would be a big recession. That has not happened yet. We heard there would be massive layoffs. And yes, in the tech industry, there absolutely is. But what has not really changed was the competitiveness of people trying to find talent. And everybody's going after the same amount of talent. It is very hard to get them. It's hard to keep them. And so if you really want to be competitive in this environment as a company, you have to be able to up your game. Well, fortunately for you, we have a guest that has the remedy for you. Angela Valenti is an expert in the hiring business, primarily through the use of psychological instruments. So we had the privilege of having Angelo actually here in the studio down here in Dixon, Tennessee. And we spent about 45 minutes just chatting about different things re relating to the hiring industry, but also the instruments. And so we talked about things like the biggest mistakes company make, companies make when they're in the hiring process, uh, why your culture is such an important piece of that, benchmarking, and a lot of the other things that I know that you struggle with or are worried about. And so lots of practical tips today. You'll really enjoy this one. It was a lot of fun talking to Angelo. So let's quit talking about the man. Let's talk to him. Let's make sure that personal item is tucked underneath the seat in front of you. Make sure your seat belt is buckled low and across your hips. Time for us to taxi to the runway. Should the cabin lose pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the overhead area. Please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast, the show focused on the overworked, overwhelmed, and underappreciated HR professional. And now, here is the host of our show, the boss builder, Mac Monroe. Angelo Valenti, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, and the thing is, you are actually here. So if you are a listener of our podcast, you know that we do almost everything remote. I actually have a live guest here in the studio on the 45th floor in <laughs> Dixon, Tennessee. Uh, you can see the world from up here, can't you? Well, you can see all of Dixon. <laughs> yeah, and like I told you when you came out here, we're the only two-story building in the city of Dixon. So... Uh, but I really enjoy this because we're going to be talking about assessments today and assessments specifically to help us with hiring. 
Right now, I'm guessing that if you are listening to this, you are struggling finding good candidates, getting candidates onboarded, keeping your best candidates, trying to prevent them from getting poached by other companies. But we want to focus back on how do we use psychological instruments to improve our hiring. And Angelo, you are the expert at this, and so we've got a bunch of questions we're going to go over. But before we get to those, uh, talk about yourself, Angelo. Tell us about your journey, where you got started, and what you're working on today. Sure. Uh, well, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, so I'm a damn Yankee. I moved south and stayed. Uh, <laughs> but I went, uh, got my bachelor's degree uh, from Case Western Reserve, and then went to graduate school at the University of Georgia, got a master's degree and a PhD in psychology from the University of Georgia. And after that, I taught college for four years at Oklahoma City University, where I was uh, chairman of the Department of Psychology for three of those four years. And after four years, I realized I couldn't raise two children on what I was making as a college professor, which wasn't very much. So I joined a consulting firm. I joined RHR International, uh, which was a big psychological consulting firm uh, in their Memphis office. They were opening up a Memphis office. So I moved from Oklahoma City to Memphis, and that's where I learned how to consult with businesses, and I fell in love with it. And in 1982, I developed a relationship with a client in Nashville, and he liked what I did for him, and I liked him. He was fun to work with. And he offered me an opportunity to move to Nashville and set up my own consulting practice. I guess he was tired of paying <laughs> the travel, the, huh? He was, and that and the national consulting firm fees. Ah, so yeah. <laughs> he figured he could get me a bargain, and he did. Uh, so I moved to Nashville, set up my own shop, the company psychologist, and I've been doing that ever since, helping companies hire the right people, helping companies develop the talent that they have, and coaching leaders and those people who want to be leaders. That's great. So did you manage to keep that client while you launched on your own? As I were? did. Uh -huh. I kept that client for 20 years until he retired. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I actually had, when I started, I had an office in with his uh, suite of offices so that he could get to me anytime he wanted me. Wow. He was very generous and great. His name was Bill Cochran. He was the general agent with Northwestern Mutual Life. So I got yeah. my start helping him pick salespeople which is an ongoing challenge for every organization. Yeah. Because uh, everybody says they want to be in sales because they see the BMW and they see guys uh, playing golf with their buddies and with clients and they don't realize how hard it is. <laughs> so Yeah, well, if you like sales, you've got a gene that not everybody has. That's yeah. true. Yeah, that's it. So when you started your practice, what was the biggest challenge going from somebody who worked for someone to now somebody who... You know, now you're hunting, you're killing, you're gutting, you're skinning, and then you're cooking. Yeah, absolutely. And then you can eat. Absolutely. What was the difference for you? Did you find it to be a challenge? Well, it was a tremendous challenge. Um, but I was young and I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd gotten some pretty good sales training with the consulting firm. And Bill Cochran, as I mentioned, he was on the board of one of the big banks in town. And he introduced me to a lot of the people who were running big businesses in Nashville. So I had a lot of soft intros to those businesses and grew from there. But I will say that if you're going to be an independent consultant, you have to be prepared for variability of income. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> you do. <laughs> you preach into the choir here, you, brother. You, yeah, <laughs> you can't tell sometimes whether you're rich or poor. <laughs> <laughs> and you can never just say, "Well, I think I'll just take a little three month break." You cannot take. There no. are no three. No, there is not even a week break. There's uh, no yeah. paid vacations. You're paying your own benefits. Yeah, but yeah. you do have one thing that a lot of people don't have, and that's schedule control. Yeah, if you control your schedule, you control your life. And I have found that to be the most enjoyable part, besides helping my clients, which I love to this day, um, is having some control over my schedule. Yeah. But I think, too, you probably went through some phases where you had control over your schedule, but you didn't exercise the control. I know for me, the schedule runs me most of the time. So well, the, you, have yeah. to, you have to mentor me because the calendar is the boss around here. And Lisa controls the calendar. So technically, Lisa's the boss. Lisa now, how did that happen? Lisa is the boss. Well, I better not let her know. She's going to want to raise. Well, I, I <laughs> early on, before technology, when people had actual physical calendars that they wrote things on, mm-hmm. I would just block time off. I'd block time off for report writing. I'd block time off if I wanted to play golf that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I worked my client's schedule around those times that I had blocked off. And I tried uh, to be accommodating to them. I've interviewed people at midnight before. I've interviewed people at five o'clock in the morning because I work with clients that have operations all Mm. over the world. And it can be challenging scheduling somebody who lives in Singapore. Yeah. And somebody, I actually did this last month. I I had one interview uh, of a client, uh, candidate in Singapore and one in Galway, Ireland. Hmm. So scheduling both of those was kind of Yeah, fun. well, one's across the date line. Well, it was 14 hours. Yeah. And one was just six-hour difference. Yeah, I guess Europe's a little different. Wow. Yeah, that's a big difference, isn't it? So, yeah, I, I'm with you there. You're kind of preaching at the choir. Uh, that, to me, is the best part, is having at least the ability, theoretically, to control your schedule. I When I travel, I don't know if you ever did this, especially when you work for somebody, but, you know, your travel in itself seems glamorous. Um, I think you and I can safely let everybody know it ain't that glamorous. Business travel stinks. Yeah, that, thank you. It terrible. sucks. It's horrible. So, you know, I remember getting all excited like, oh, this is the life. And I'll never forget, when I was still active duty, I was part of a group. We were doing some process improvement work. And so the Navy sent us to a training course in San Diego. Was it San Diego? No, no, no. It was in D.C. We were stationed up in Washington State. And uh, so I traveled in civilian clothes. And... I remember I had my little box briefcase. Remember the one like Grandpa carries? And I had a suit on. And I thought, man, I can't wait for this. This is going to be me every week on a plane. And then I ran into this guy. He's an older consultant. As soon as I got out of the Navy, and and he was just commiserating. Like, God, I hate this. I said, how can you hate? This is the best. He's like, give it time. And then I think it was last year I thought, man, I know exactly what Rich is talking about. Because I had a business trip. I'm like... I wonder if I could pretend I'm sick. I mean, I love the client, but the thought of getting on the plane and all the hassles and this and that. Oh, sure. Yeah. I'm sure this has happened to you. I actually woke up and forgot what city I was in a couple times. Yeah, that's easy to do, isn't it? The hotel rooms look alike. The rental cars look alike. Yeah. You don't get to see the city that you're in. Usually you're in a hotel. In my case, since I'm interviewing candidates that are flying in also... The hotel's right by the airport. Yeah. So all I get to see is the airport, the hotel, 
the airport back home. And out, yeah, yeah, that's true. You do get that. And and I think, too, you get to the point, I did anyway before COVID, where even like the TSA agents at Nashville Airport, you know, I knew them by name. Oh, sure. And then they had, I don't know if you remember when they had the O'Charlies in there before they completed Yes, I remember Yeah, that. so the server's name is James. I'd always have like breakfast at 4.30. Be like, oh, Mr. Monroe, you're back. I'm like, James. Like, that's when you know. When you get home and your dog barks at you, you right. know you've been traveling too much. So, yeah, when your yeah. kids start calling you Uncle Daddy. Yeah, know. who's that man? Like, that's your father. Yeah, and that, my kids grew up that way. So, you know, I, I mean, we would always, and I did several red eyes where, you know, I'd come home on a Friday night because one of our kids had an early Saturday soccer or football game. And, you know, I'd be sitting there half asleep in the little chair, feeling like a superhero because I'm here for my kids. And I thought... You're just selfish. You should have just canceled this trip. You know. I mean, I could say that now in hindsight, but you know, when I was young, it's like God, we got to put food on the table. You know, sure. you. When I'm not on the road, we're losing money. That's so right. it's and, and, and when you're when you're a consultant, if the meter's not running, there's nobody nobody's paying you. And when you go on vacation, mm-hmm. you get double hit. You're not <laughs> making money and you're spending money. Yeah, yeah. No paid vacations. I actually day tripped it to L.A. one time. Really? From I, where? From here? From here. I took an early Jeez. morning flight to L.A. Of course, you pick up a couple hours yeah. going. Interviewed somebody in a hotel room close to the airport, and then caught a late flight come back. Got in about one o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could probably pull that yeah, off. I mean, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that is a lot. I don't recommend of, it. No, no. I mean, so have you seen, I guess COVID's probably changed your business a little, hasn't it? Are you doing some things now remote with Zoom or anything? I'm doing almost everything remote. Okay. For a couple of reasons. One, clients don't like paying travel expenses anymore. Yeah. And two, I can I can talk to three or four people in a day in, one's in California, one's in New York, one's in Pennsylvania, one's in Florida. And from the comfort of my home office, mm-hmm. And the clients like it better because they get faster turnaround, and I can schedule more people in a week than I could if I was traveling all the time. So did did the travel slow down when COVID hit, or had it already been? No, slowed? it had already slowed down some for me. I've been prepared to work remotely for a long time. Have you? Okay. It started with Skype, which was terrible. Yeah. And Is that even still around? I don't, I don't <laughs> you don't hear. It's like, no. now we say I'm going to Zoom. Before it's I'm going to Skype. Right. So now we're going to Zoom, even if I'm using Teams or WebEx. Zoom, work, Zoom works great. Uh, teams I've had some success with and some not. But mm-hmm. a lot of my clients have made teams their default video conferencing. So mm, I just gotta work with that. We'll, we'll maybe insist on it. So Angela, when you were the road warrior, um, did you find yourself at least I did, and I was wondering if I was the only one, where you start to take great pride in your points, your status. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So how did you reconcile when the travel slowed and you started to see like for me, it was like, oh, you're not going to be A-list preferred this year. I'm not A-list preferred anymore. I'm not even A-list anymore. I just, I haven't taken a business. You mean I am anymore. interviewing somebody who's not A-list? I, yes. I feel insulted. Well, oh my God, get over it. <laughs> <laughs> the last, the, the last business trip I took was last February to mm-hmm. Houston. Okay. I was speaking at one of my clients' meetings, and the one before that was to California, uh, flew into Oakland and drove two hours into the almond capital of the world 
which I can't even remember the name of the city anymore, was mm. two hours inland from Oakland. Uh -huh. uh, that was not that much fun. <laughs> but I was interviewing people for three days there. Jeez. Uh, but just don't take them as much anymore. Yeah. And would rather not get on a plane at all if I could help it. There you go. Okay, that's. I was wondering if I was the only one that felt that way. It's well, like traveling by traveling by plane now to me is like traveling by bus was thirty or forty yeah, years ago. Yeah, and I know people say, "Oh, Southwest has the cattle call." No, they don't. Go fly United or Delta and watch people crowd those gates. Right. At least Southwest, you're in a line. So there ain't a, yeah, it may be a cattle call, but these are some well-behaved oh, cattle. I remember Southwest when they gave you those little cards. Those yeah, you had to stand in line to get the card, and then you had to go to the corral. That was a cattle call. Remember that? I do. Yeah, we would take the kids to Orlando when we, they were little, and we'd sit there for an hour and a half in the front. And I'd like the kids would realize, all right, guys. See that sign way over there? I want you to race. See who gets there. And I tried to run them hard as I could to tire them out, you know, because sure. we're sitting there waiting. But we we kind of went through that. You know, Barb's like, God, you know, we're not, we don't get our, our points like we used to. I'm like, yeah, but the trade-off is I'm not gone all the time. Right. You know, and that's the difference. So, um, yeah, anyway. I guess we're supposed to be talking about the hiring process, but... I think it's important too. I mean, if we're thinking about roles and selecting people for the right fit, I think anybody listening today that's thinking about starting a business, maybe that's the best part of this interview for them. Like, you know, it's, I think you should talk to people before you put up your sign and quit your day job. You know? Absolutely. It's, it's invigorating. It's challenging. It's something a lot of people say they want to do, but when it comes down to it, it takes, I'm not patting myself on the back, but it takes guts mm -hmm. to leave something secure for something for the unknown. And everybody, to, to an extent, has a fear of the, un, of the unknown. Yeah. But if you've got a great idea, and if you've got a great work ethic, and if you can build relationships with people, you can make it work. Mm -hmm. But you, you got to work it. <laughs> you gotta work it every day. Yeah, and you got it. Like so, you can look on the wall there. That's my year calendar. Everything with red is a road trip. Now you look at that, and you're like, "Shit, man, how are you gonna pay your bills?" So I look at that, and there's a part of me that is nervous about that, but then there's a part of me that's energized because sure. it's like it's a challenge. It's a rush. Like. Hey, if you don't put something on that calendar, man, it's going to be a lean month. So, right. and, and yeah. you, you're like me, you go on a month-to-month -month basis. You, you you measure your productivity yeah. by the month. Did you have a good month? Did you have a bad month? Yeah. You wake up. When you're in business for yourself, you wake up every morning without a job. <laughs> and you've got to create your own job. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you nailed it. That should have been our topic, right? When or when do, not to quit your boss. We can do another one. We should do another one. But let's do this one all here. Right, so, All right, so you gave me some questions here. So let's talk about the biggest mistake companies make in the hiring process. What would that be? The biggest mistake companies make, from what I've seen, is they place too much emphasis on skills and not enough emphasis on attitude. And if you think about, I don't know if you've ever had to let somebody go before in a position. Yeah, yes. Okay. Yeah. Did you let them go because they were incapable of doing the job, the requirements of the job, or was it because of their attitude? Were they tardy? Were they disruptive? Were they argumentative? Did they just not seem to have much interest in what was going on in the business? I mean, technical skills can be taught, 
Yeah. And a lot of companies like to hire people, the smart ones, that don't have a lot of past experience because they don't have to untrain them in the other way of doing it before they train them in their way of doing it. Mm -hmm. And one of the worst things that can happen in a culture, which we're going to talk about, is when somebody comes in and says, well, the way we did it at XYZ company was this, and they keep trying to do it the way they were doing it before without realizing that they're in a new culture, a new organization, and a new, different way of doing things. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for them to adjust if they haven't left the past behind. So attitude, to me, is much more important than skills. You can teach skills, you can't teach attitude. The attitude that a person has coming in is the attitude that the person, you can make it worse, Mm -hmm. you're not going to make it better usually. Yeah, that makes sense. So you've used the word culture a couple times. So culture and attitude, is there a correlation between those two? There, you can look at culture as the organizational attitude. Okay. And there are a lot of definitions of culture, but what I've kind of come down on is the, the simplest way to think about culture is how does the leadership of that business treat the, their people in the organization and how do those people treat each other, their customers, their vendors, and the general public. So it's a matter of communication, it's a matter of relating to a wide variety of people. So, And you can feel, in some organizations, you can feel the culture when you walk into the office, when you walk into the building. Mm-hmm. And I can give you an example of that mm-hmm. if you want to hear Yes, that. please. Okay, when I first started consulting, I was called in to a client in uh, Memphis. Mm-hmm. The company's not in business anymore, so I can, I'm not going to say the name of the company. But I met with the human resource person at the door. He invited me in. And the first thing I noticed was that it was freezing cold in the building and this was a building that the the company owned the whole building it's like eight floors so being a tactful person that i am i said why the hell is it so cold in here Mm -hmm. (laughs) he smiled and he said the boss which was a red flag right there if they're calling the owner of the business the boss the boss yeah that kind of sets the tone Mm -hmm. um has an extensive art collection throughout the building. And art keeps better at 64 degrees than it does at 72 degrees. 64? 64. This was in the summer. Wow. And the administrative people had, either they were wearing sweaters or they had sweaters draped over their their chairs Mm -hmm. so they could put them on when it got unbearably cold for them. So that that told me right away. I didn't I didn't really recognize it at the time, mm-hmm. like I would now, uh, that the owner of that business cared more about his art than he did about his people. Yeah. Wow. Just a simple walk around the office might yeah. enlighten that person. Sure. You would think. Yeah. Sure. So that would be a culture of I guess I'm the boss. I'm most important. Um, he was he was very narcissistic. Okay. That well, I guess that would make sense if your art is more important than the comfort of the people. Right. And I think if you are, so you can look around my office and see my artwork is kind of some shitty artwork, 
All I'm seeing. Well, those are my grandkids' art. That's my grandkids' work. Probably better than mine. So you can look around. I got some of my stuff hanging, but it ain't that good. And I would not subject my employees to cold temperatures so that that does not get (laughs) destroyed. You'd have to have a pretty high self-opinion. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to take it a step further, he had his he had his desk at, in his office, which is a very long, thin office, where he had pictures of him with all of the famous people that he'd met over the years, mm-hmm. uh, up on a, about an 18-inch pedestal. Mm-hmm. So the desk was higher than the rest of the room. And when you sat down to talk with him, your chair, I mean, you were looking up at him. Your chair, it was like a throne almost. What? You were, <laughs> you were looking up at him. Um, but he had a lot of great people working for him, and I wondered why. So I asked again, I asked the human resource, who happened to be a psychologist and a great guy, we got to be really good friends. He said, have you ever heard of golden handcuffs? <laughs> and I said, sure. He said, well, all the people here have golden handcuffs. They, he paid way above the uh, standard rate for almost every position in the company. Mm-hmm. And that's how he kept his people. He just paid them really well. Uh, and he had, uh, when he, he had a rule that none of the executives could leave the office until he left. Wow. So being in Memphis... They came up with a great strategy. Uh, the parking lot uh, had a security guard out front. And when his limo pulled out of, the, out of the parking lot, the security guard would call up to the executive suite and say, Elvis has left the building. <laughs> so they knew they could leave. Oh, jeez. True story. That, no, I believe it's true. I think that was kind of a common thing. You know, if you leave before the boss... And the boss is checking the parking lot. That so, in your experience, Angela, are those cultures still around? Unfortunately, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, not as much. Uh, most executives, business owners, uh, are more enlightened and have realized the importance of making their organization someplace where people want to come to work, want to contribute. They feel like it's their home away from home which made it really difficult during COVID because a lot of people suffered from some pretty bad mental issues uh, when they were pulled away from their office and had to work remotely Mm -hmm. because that was, their friends were there, their relationships were there, they enjoyed the camaraderie, they enjoyed getting out of the house. A lot of people enjoy getting out of the house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you can't do it anymore, uh, it was a big shock to a lot of people. Some people got depressed. Some people got anxious. Uh, it was tough for some people. So some people adjusted to it so well that they decided they didn't want to go back to the office anymore, which created a new set of problems. Yeah, one that I think we're probably still Absolutely. wrestling with. Yeah, Absolutely. We are starting to see, at least I'm seeing, a lot of our clients beginning to very subtly pull people back. And it's little things that are kind of hinting that, you know, hey, we want to do this. And I just wonder, and you've been around a while. So, I mean, you've seen trends come and go. This is one we haven't seen before, the remote now right. office. But um, do you foresee, based on all your experience, that eventually we'll go back to the way things used to be? Do you think the work from home is going to be a permanent thing? Or was this be just a major speed bump we ran over and eventually it'll be in the past? 
I think it's going to be permanent. Okay. And the reason I think it's going to be permanent is because businesses and employees, some of them have realized they can be just as productive or more productive working remotely than in the office. And when you think about it from an economic standpoint, if a business doesn't need 40,000 square feet, it only needs 20,000 square feet, that saves them a bunch of money. Mm -hmm. And if people are just as productive, if you think about uh, somebody working in, living in Dixon and working in downtown Nashville Mm -hmm. every day, making that commute every day, that's an hour and a half, Mm -hmm. almost two hours out of their life every day, the cost of gasoline, the cost of parking, the cost of wear and tear on their car. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have to do that, that's going to be very appealing. When you can get three hours back into your day and not getting up early, as early, you know, I mean... If you really push back on taking showers every day, there's that. Or getting um, dre- dressed in business attire. Right, at least from the top up, right. you know. Yeah. yeah. I guess I wonder because, you know, it took so long to kind of, it was before COVID, at least when we lived up in the Northeast, up in the Washington, D.C. area, of course, the big thing was the federal workforce you know, they want to telework. And then it was like, well, they don't even work when they're actually in the office. How are we going to trust them to work from home? And I remember reading that in the Washington Post. Like, we can't trust people to work from home. And then, of course, COVID comes, and then it's like, wow, like, we have no choice. Like, everybody's got to go. And I think people really stepped up. I think some people then, the ones that did not like the open office concept, which, you know, I guess I can see where somebody thought that was great. I don't think they bothered to ask the uh, folks that have the preference for introversion for their opinion, because that's usually the group who says, I can't focus and concentrate in this. But like now it's like a norm. And now I see, and I don't know if you're seeing it, but like, you know, where people look at job postings, oh, that one doesn't have opportunities for remote. So I'm counting myself out. Are you beginning to see that too? Absolutely. Okay. Some people will have decided that they're going to insist mm-hmm. on working remotely for all the things, reasons we talked about. And with the tight labor market where it's hard to find good people, if you're willing, if you can find somebody who is far superior to any of the other candidates, but they have to work remote, wouldn't you rather have that? Than, wouldn't you have a, rather have a superstar working remotely than a C player working in the office? Yeah, that's true. I think what you do too, um, I think there's people who really want that office experience. Yes. I've kind of seen it with my daughter. You know, she's 100% remote and she hates it. She wakes up in the morning and can see her desk from her bed. And then, so now she's going to be moving to Dallas working. And one of the requirements in this other job is that she's got to be in the office three three days a week. And I told her in the interview, I says, in your interview, tell them how excited you are. Right. Because I said, I think that's what they're face. I said, the reason they probably pick you so quick is everybody else says, oh, I, I need to be 100% remote. I got kids and dogs and goldfish and whatever. And like, Allison's like, let's go. I want to go to the office. That's why I went in this field. I want to go to the office, you know? Well, I think that the hybrid might be the answer for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Coming to the office two or three days a week and work remotely the other two days. Because there are some advantages to an office environment. You get the informal communication. You can get questions answered. 
much more quickly. You can get those touch points, and for a leader, it's really important for you to get those touch points with your people. Mm -hmm. It might be just a two or three minute conversation, but it lets them know that we're connected somehow and that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. It's very easy to feel isolated when you're working remotely and not feel that you're part of a bigger enterprise mm -hmm. than just what you happen to be doing as your job. Yeah. I think that's probably going to really slow the growth of some people's professional skills is not having that office environment. I yeah. think it is. It's going, to, it's going to slow their opportunities for advancement because if, if, if leadership doesn't see people, what they can do on a day-to-day -day basis, and not only see that, but their personality. Mm -hmm. How do they interact with customers? How do they interact with their, who has leadership qualities that the company can benefit from? You don't get to see that if the person's working remotely. So how would that impact? Because you made the point that culture is important, that uh, your attitude is important. So when someone's remote, does that still have that same level of importance if they're not physically in there where people see them every day? I think it's incumbent on those people to manage up. In other words, make sure that they're communicating with their, their manager and leadership above them. Let them know that you're still out there. Mm -hmm. And if you have an idea, make sure that you communicate that idea quickly to the right people so that they know you're involved, you're engaged, you care. Mm -hmm. I think that's the case. I mean, if you think about it, it's sort of like having a plant that you forget to water. Oh, I, I'll water when I get home today. Like, oh, shoot, I forgot. Tomorrow morning, and then you go out one day and your plant's dead. Yep. And I think that's the case with some fully remote workers. And they may enjoy that, but I think there's some who, like, I want the boss to see me. Like, sure. some are like, this is great. I can do what I want. I just, I've seen these little things you can buy for your mouse that makes your mouse wiggle every 30 minutes so that you can appear like you're doing something. Oh, that's cute. That's, you know what that is? That's American ingenuity. It like, is. we can be the ultimate slackers. Yeah. Like, we are made an industry out of being lazy, right? Like, oh, look at how we can pretend we're working. Oh, well, if you, if you want to find the simplest way to do something, it might not be the best way to do something. Mm -hmm. The simplest way to do it, ask a lazy person to do it. Because <laughs> he's going to intuitively uh -huh. come up with the simplest way to get it done. <laughs> so there's a place for everyone at the table, Absolutely. I guess. Huh? Absolutely. All right. Well, I don't want to be that lazy guy. All right. So let's get back to hiring for attitude. Can instruments, psychological instruments, help us with that? Absolutely. Personality tests and behavior tests and motivational tests. I use a cocktail of four different instruments. One measures behavior, the uh -huh. DISC, which many people are familiar with. Mm -hmm. The reason I use it is because it works. Mm -hmm. It's easy to understand, it's easy to use for coaching purposes, and it's easier to differentiate people who might fit the role and might not fit the role. Okay. Motivators, you want to know what motivates people. Mm -hmm. Some people are motivated by money, some people are motivated by challenge, some people are motivated by an opportunity to learn. Some people are motivated by structure, discipline. I'm sure you ran into a lot of those people in the military. They like the structure. They, mm -hmm. like, they like the routine. Mm -hmm. uh, not everybody's like that. Some mm -hmm. people want a harmonious environment. They want everybody to be happy around them. They want to feel safe or they want to feel good about where they're working. Uh, so I, I have an assessment that measures that. I have an assessment that measures soft skills, 25 different soft skills, mm -hmm. which 
Uh, I can give you a list of those. Yeah, I'm interested in which ones you use, just okay. out of curiosity, yeah. All right, this instrument's called uh, Performance DNA, and it measures going down from, it measures the level of development that the person feels that they have on these 25 skills. Okay. Employee development and coaching, appreciating others, teamwork, flexibility, customer focus, resiliency, interpersonal skills, understanding others, negotiation, time and priority management, decision making, conflict management, creativity and innovation, self-starting, personal accountability, problem solving, conceptual thinking, continuous learning, futuristic thinking, planning and organizing, project management, influencing others, leadership, goal orientation, diplomacy. So those sound like competencies. Is that what those are? They, are, they, just, they are, are competencies. They're kind of like, what are you good at? Okay, all right. And so when a person takes that, do they do forced choice, or is it a Likert scale? It's or what a is... Likert scale. Okay, Yeah. okay. So what is that one called? The performance DNA. Performance DNA. So you have disc, performance DNA. And motivators. And motivators, okay. Yeah. All right, so those are the three that you primarily use? And then use. also the 16PF, which measures 16 personality factors. The DISC is a behavior assessment. Uh -huh. Motivators is what motivates people. Mm -hmm. It's a competency. What are you good at? Mm -hmm. The personality assessment is what makes you unique. Okay. Okay? And what I use for that is the 16PF. Okay. It measures 16 personality factors, hence the name. Uh, one, and it's uh, they're on a continuum. The first factor is warm versus reserved. Mm -hmm. are the, is the person more people-oriented or more task-oriented? The second factor is abstract versus concrete thinking. Mm -hmm. Emotional stability, reactive. Dominant, submissive. Lively and spontaneous or serious and restrained. Rule conscious or expedient, non-conforming. Socially bold or shy. Utilitarian or aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Suspicious or trusty. Imaginative or practical. Private or forthright, apprehensive or self-assured, open to change or traditional, self-reliant or group-oriented, perfectionistic or tolerant, tolerating of disorder, hmm. relaxed or tense. So the combination of those 16 personality factors gives you a good idea of how that person is likely to behave in different business situations and what makes them so at what point in the process would the candidate take these? Would they take all four? Yes. Okay. Okay. So do they take them when, like, do they, does a company, do, like, their top three candidates? Yes. Okay. That's exactly what they do. Okay. All right. And so based on that, now, is that going to be the sole factor? Do they also take into account, like, their experience or oh, skills sure. and all that, too? And, and that, that's what comes <coughs> to my client to vet out. Okay, so you don't pick. You just say, "Here's, here's the top. How many do you? I'm gonna give them three, five. Well, not five. Usually, I recommend that my clients select the top two or three, and it's because it's easier to compare and contrast people. If you have more than, if you just have one person, if you just a one off, I, I can give you a good idea mm -hmm. of what that person's gonna be like in the workplace. But are they the best candidate? 
they could be a good candidate, but mm -hmm. I don't know if they're the best candidate unless they have somebody else to compare them to. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing that the top three or two probably all are similar in terms of skills and There's, experience. Yes. Okay. That, because, so now we're looking for because the... Because they have a job description. Mm -hmm. Companies have a job description. So the candidates have to meet the requirements of the job description. Mm -hmm. you're, you're just taking it a step further. Absolutely. Where an average company just like, all you got your resume, it looks like it's a good match. The ATS says you're a good match. You know, you have a pulse, you seem nice, you're hired. And then they wonder six months later, why the heck did we hire this person? Yeah. Because they're showing up late or they uh, take time off when they're not supposed to take time off or they argue with their, they can't get along with the other people in the business or they irritated your biggest customer. Mm -hmm. Now think about how detrimental it could be. Oh, yeah. If you have somebody in your organization that you just hired who manages to irritate your biggest customer to the point where they've decided they want to go do business with somebody else, how much money does that cost you? Yeah. I think getting rid of that person and not worried about the potential litigation, like, you just cost us a fortune. Right. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, the, the better option is don't hire them in the first place. But, but isn't that, I mean, are you seeing this too, though, the desperation? Because everybody's fighting for the same small pool yeah. of candidates that really are worthy of being fought over. And then, like, oh, we didn't get our first choice, so let's take our 47th choice. If you settle, you're going to be asking yourself that question. Why did we hire this person? Mm -hmm. Because you forget, six months or a year down the road, you forget how desperate you were mm. way back then to fill that spot. I've heard, I've heard <coughs> clients say, well, let's just hire somebody and we'll fix them later. So then I always ask them, well, do you have time to fix them? Mm -hmm. No. Do you know how to fix them? No. Do you have the budget to fix them? No. Then how are they going to get fixed? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. just don't hire them in the first place. Yeah. So are you finding that you you get a lot of companies that actually are embracing this? Or oh, do, you, sure. do you tend to push, have to like tell people, look, if we're going to do my way, this isn't going to happen in 15 minutes. Like This is a process. But we need somebody yesterday. That probably wouldn't be an ideal client. Probably not. Okay. The clients that I work with uh, have not only embraced the process, but it's become part of the culture. Mm -hmm. They know how to speak the language. Uh, for I use these same assessments for professional development with internal employees, people that they're thinking about promoting. They'll put them through my I'll go through my process, and I can help identify where they're strong where they might need some training opportunities, some things that might be holding them back. Um, and it's, it's a good starting point when I coach people too. Okay, good. So in your services, is that kind of what you're doing too, is coming alongside some of the talent that you're finding fits for, or how does that part of it work? Um, say that... Ask me the question. So like if, like it sounds like you know, you've done some coaching. Do you, do you help a candidate in that process or do people outsource development to you of our current candidates? Well, I'll work with, I'll work with 
once they're on board, mm -hmm. I'll work with them okay. to make sure that they're maximizing their value to the organization and their potential for future development. Okay. Yeah, for okay. Future opportunities. Yeah. Good. Good. All right. So you are working on a book. I see here. I so am. I'm looking through my notes. So tell us about the book. The book uh, is called Leadership in the Face of Change. What great leaders know about navigating the unknown. Mm -hmm. And the reason I started the book was the epic change that occurred when COVID hit. People, and it was a change that was totally unanticipated. A lot of companies could see that there, there's going to be a downturn in the market, either they're short on materials or they're having uh, logistical problems or. Uh, new products have been introduced and they've got to catch up. But this was something nobody could predict. Right. And companies and individuals reacted to it in wildly different ways. So some, I had a great example of, uh, I talked to an individual who worked in an educational environment. And as you know, all of a sudden, Students had to be taught remotely. Mm -hmm. Well, he said it was no problem for us because we had put in place an emergency plan. We thought it was going to be for tornadoes or some natural disaster where the kids couldn't come into the classroom. Mm -hmm. But lo and behold, when they couldn't come into the classroom, we had video remote learning already in place for that eventuality. So by accident, mm -hmm. they had the perfect plan yeah. for not disrupting <laughs> the, the educational process too much. Not everybody was that had that much foresight or good luck, depending on what you Yeah. Think. So uh, I wanted to address the topic of change, not just from COVID, but in general, you see the pace of change increasing exponentially all the time. Mm -hmm. So how leaders and their team react to change is going to be critically important in determining how successful they're going to be. And the, the change is written on the, on the book cover, C period, H period, A period, N period, G period, E period. So I got six sections and three chapters on each section. Culture, oh. courage, curiosity. That's right. That's chapter. Okay, I see. Section one. Yeah. H is hiring, humility, humor, and going down. Yeah. So that's the book. I've got four and a half chapters written, and it's not easy, but it's fun. No, writing <laughs> books is not easy, but when you get it done, that's the beauty. Is you oh, can say, yeah, I've got a book. So well, when you get the book, we'll have you back on the show to talk about the book. Great. But what I'd like to talk about is how my audience can reach out to you if they are really trying to find the right candidate for a very important position. They don't want to screw it up. They're navigating this battle for talent and they want Angelo in their corner. How do they reach out to you? There's a few ways. Okay. The easiest way is to go to reachangelo.com and set up a discovery call. Okay. That's the first. ReachAngelo.com. ReachAngelo.com. It yeah. goes right to my calendar, and we'll set up a discovery. Okay. Second, you can email me at Valenti, V-A-L-E-N-T-I, at the company psychologist, all one word, mm -hmm. dot com. Okay. 
go to my website, which is thecompanypsychologist.com, mm -hmm. and I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. So I'm pretty easy to find, mm -hmm. and I'd love to talk with you. Excellent. Well, if you are listening to this, please reach out to Angela Valente. These are going to be some great resources for you to have somebody in your corner as you're navigating this battle for talent. So, Angela, thank you. And thank you especially for coming all the way down here to beautiful Oceanfront, Dixon, Tennessee. Oh, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> I, actually enjoy, I actually enjoyed the drive. It was about a half a cigar drive. There you go. Well, you can finish it on the drive home. That's At it. this hour, yeah, you should be able, you might finish that other half, but uh, this is an hour later. You might want to light up a couple. So, <laughs> All right, my friend. Thank you. Thanks, Mac. Well, thanks for taking the time to listen to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. I hope you enjoy listening to these as much as I enjoy making them. I've learned so much from the guests we've had on the show over the past few years, and I hope that you will continue to listen to us regularly. If you are a subscriber on any podcast app or channel, would you do us a favor and take a moment and leave us a review? We would really, really appreciate it. Also, if you have the time, check out all the offerings we have on our website, which is thebossbuilders.com. We have every other month a Sherm Credit webinar that we present, as well as a ton of other events, not to mention our Art of the Great Boss and Art of Being a Great Teammate programs. More information on that site today. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Oh, by the way, may want to unbuckle that seatbelt. I think we just arrived at the gate. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. We hope you found something today that will relieve your stress, feed your soul, and pump you up to face another day. At Boss Builders, we want to let you know that we appreciate the hard work you do every day as an HR professional. And as a reminder, always make sure to adjust your own oxygen mask before attempting to help those around you. Be well.